We're going to turn our attention to God's Word, and we're going to be back in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible, let's open it up to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to bring up Chad Anison. Chad is one of our life group leaders, and so if you're looking for a life group, you can join his. I told Chad that I was going to invite the entire church, so you are all welcome at his house this Thursday. Is that fair? All right. If you will, please stand as Chad reads from God's Word, Luke 9, starting in verse 1. Luke chapter 9, verse 1 through 17. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. In whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this day. Lord, we're grateful that we can gather together as your people in freedom. And Lord, our eyes are upon you here this morning. Let us hope in your steadfast love. Let us hope and find that you are our help and our shield. We trust in your holy name, O Lord. God, we ask that you would teach us now according to your word. Have with us as you will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, like I said earlier, uh, I had this entire summer off. I was on a sabbatical. And it was amazing. (laughs) It was incredible. I was in awe all summer long of God's marvelous works in creation. From Louisiana, that wasn't the nicest place that we've been, but Jimmy... I'm going to give you grace right now, buddy. (laughs) Bro Bridge, Louisiana. They talk a little different down there. That's okay. This summer, my family and I, we went on two separate road trips. 10,000 miles. 25 states. Half of them. It was incredible. 
And on these road trips, we hit up a number of national parks. We saw the Smoky Mountains. They lived up to their name. They were great. We saw the Grand Tetons. They were grand. Yellowstone blew me out of the water. Then we went to Glacier, and oh my gosh, grizzly bears, mountain goats. Yeah, we were very close to them. But one of my favorite parks and parts of the entire summer is when we went to the Redwoods in Northern California. I've got a picture that I want to show you guys up here. This is our family in the Redwoods. And in case you don't know what this is, it's the root system of a redwood tree that has fallen. And so I'm on the left with Cortland, Michelle and Margot are on the right with Solomon. And if you look all the way up here, we got Jude and Augie. And this thing was so cool and so awesome. And it was like a massive jungle gym that my kids got to play in. But probably the coolest part is that if you notice right here, there are trees growing out of this log and we could see the root system coming down. And I'm just like, this is amazing. And I was in awe and it was so cool. It was so incredible. And so I'm thankful not only for a church that cares for its pastors, that wants to send them on fun adventures like this, but mainly to rest and to recharge and to connect with the Lord. But I'm also grateful to be back. And I'm grateful to be bringing God's Word to you here this morning. And so we have taken a little bit of a break in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, our passage, we're going to be in awe of God's mighty work through Christ. And so just to give you a little bit of a flyover, chapters 1 through 8 in the Gospel of Luke, we started out with Jesus' birth story. A story that maybe we're all very familiar with, but it was great to walk through the entire thing during the Advent season last year. And then Jesus begins His ministry in Galilee. And He starts to proclaim the kingdom of God. And He's healing people. And He's showing His authority over the spiritual world as He's casting out demons. And He's doing this alongside His twelve apostles. And He has a group of women who are also following Him as well. And so, He has these uneducated, common, ordinary men that He's going to entrust with this message of the kingdom. And we're going to see that a little bit here this morning. Our passage today, Jesus' power is going to be on display, and the proclamation of the kingdom is going to be evident. But also His provision to not just the twelve, but to all of us. And so my theme for this morning, I've got a slide for us. We will see that as sent ones by Jesus, we must rely on His power and provision as we proclaim the Gospel to the world. So I've got three points for us. We're going to see Jesus send out the twelve and the response. We're going to see Jesus feeding the five thousand in the response. And we're going to see this teachable moment that Jesus has for His apostles, but also for us. Okay? That's our roadmap. That's where we're going. Point number one, sending of the twelve. This is going to be in verses one through nine. And so we reach a time in Jesus' earthly ministry as He's been with the twelve that He wants to take a next step in their training. He is a master teacher and He has a plan that He knows that He wants to entrust the life-changing message of the Gospel with these twelve. And so, 
He wants them to take a next step and to send them out, not with Jesus, but together on their own. And he gives them power and authority. You see, the power is the ability to do something. The authority is the right to do something. And the twelve, they've seen this. They've seen this power and authority on display already in Jesus' ministry. And it's a little taste of what's to come, not just with the twelve, but next chapter in Luke, he's going to send out the seventy-two. And then eventually, in the book of Acts, after he's risen from the dead, he's going to say, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power as you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. But this is a little foretaste of that here and now in our passage this morning. And so Jesus gives them some instructions in addition to the power and authority. He says that they are not to provide for themselves. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra tunic. I don't know what they did for underwear back then, but it seems as if Jesus only wants them to bring one pair. That's a little weird. But they trust Him. And they go out. But they, He also gives them instructions on where they are to stay. And so He says whenever they enter a house, they are to stay there. That is to be the central location. And then when they leave that village, they are to depart from that house. And after studying the passage this week, it became evident to me that itinerant preachers were pretty common in Jesus' day, and they would go from village to village, and they would mooch off people. They would stay at their houses, but if that house wasn't big enough, or if that house wasn't fancy enough, they would move on to something bigger and better. And it became evident to me that the prosperity gospel was an issue in Jesus' day, just as it is in our day. But Jesus wants his disciples to stay at a central location so that they rely on him and that the message that they proclaim has weight to it. Lastly, Jesus gives them instruction on what to do when they are not received. When they are rejected, they are to leave the town. And right before they leave, they are to take off their sandals and shake the dust that is on their feet. And this is an, a symbolic act of judgment to those who reject the message that they are bringing. I have a quote with a slide from a commentator on this point. It says, It was customary for pious Jews who had traveled abroad to carefully shake the dust off alien lands from their feet and clothing. This act dissociated them from the pollution of those pagan lands and the judgment that was to come upon them. The same action by the apostles symbolically declared a hostile Jewish village to be pagan or Gentile-like. It was a merciful prophetic act designed to make the people think deeply about their spiritual condition. This shaking off the dust was meant to be a last plea for the people who are rejecting the message of the kingdom to repent. And you might be thinking to yourself, okay, if that's what Jesus' apostles did in His day, and as we've received the Holy Spirit, and as we have been sent out, what does that look like for us today? Well, 
What might a prophetic act of judgment amidst our polluted society and downward spiral be of morality in our culture? What does that look like for us? Well, we need to know where to draw the line in our culture. We do need to stand up for the oppressed. We do need to protect the next generation. But we also need to have fidelity to God's Word. And we need to have the boldness to say the track that you're heading down is going to lead to destruction. It's not for your flourishing. It's not for your good. Turn to Jesus and find life. When we do this, it needs to be on prayerful dependence upon the Lord and what that looks like for us as individuals, but also corporately as a church. But let me give you a warning here with this message. If you know where that line is, and if you have already drew it in the sand, let me ask you, for those on the other side of the line that you want to have this pronouncement of judgment towards, how much have you proclaimed the gospel to them? How much mercy have you shown them? You see, the disciples, they were, to, they were sent out to heal and to help and to cast out demons and to meet these physical needs. And while they do that, proclaim the kingdom of God and meet spiritual needs. And it begs the question, how much have we done that? Or do we see that yard in our neighbor's sign and we just draw the line right there? Or... That's the first thing that comes out of our mouth, not the last plea that comes out of our mouth. We need to be real cautious of an attitude of, well, screw them. To hell with them. No, we need to know these people. And I would say this is where the community comes in. This is where introducing people to the network of relationships that are in our lives plays such a vital role. You see, Jesus sent them out as 12, as a group, not as individual disciples. And as sent ones by Jesus for us, we are to represent Him to the uttermost. We are to image God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But also in our message, we have to share that He will by no means clear the guilty unless they are found in Christ. I think the primary application of this is through our personal relationships. Who God has called us to. Who God has put us next to in our lives. Our physical neighbor next door to us. In our neighborhood. In our hall. In our house. The coworker who's struggling. That person that you meet in the gym or on the sports team. The Lord has put you in their life for a reason and He's calling us as a community to hold them back from stumbling to the slaughter. So, it begs the question, where has Jesus sent you? Who do you find yourself around? And let that prophetic word be a merciful one. As they think deeply, as they reflect on the love that you have shown them, the needs that you have met in their lives, the community that you have introduced them to, 
I was praying on this passage this week. Even just this morning, the Lord brought someone to mind. Daniel, you probably need to share this prophetic word with them. And I've known this person for years. And they've moved out of the area, but they're coming back to visit. Many of you have met him. I met him on the hockey rink. He's been to our Sunday gathering. We've shared life with him. But he's stumbling to the slaughter. And it takes wisdom. It takes community. It takes counsel. And it takes relying on the Spirit of God to share this hard message with him. But it's a true message. And it, I hope, is not the last message that I share with him. You can pray for me with that. It's weighing heavily on my heart. So as we return to the text here, we see the disciples, they go out with just a tunic on their back. And what was the effect? Well, for Luke, he highlights for us that the most powerful man in the region hears of it, Herod. Now, this Herod mentioned here in chapter 9 is different from the Herod that we've already seen in the book of Luke before. When Jesus was born and Herod sought to kill him, that was actually Herod the Great. This Herod in Luke chapter 9 is Herod the Tetrarch, is how Luke describes him and defines him for us. King over the little region that Jesus is in. And so, he hears of everything that was happening. His ears are perked. He hears of the healings, the casting of demons, the massive following that not only Jesus is obtaining, but now the twelve seem to be accruing. And what I think is really interesting with this part of Scripture is that Herod doesn't know how to respond to Jesus. It's just a big question mark. He's perplexed the text says. He is at a loss for what to do with Jesus. He wonders, is this a resurrected prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah? Is this Elijah who was to come and usher in this next age? Or was this John the Baptist who we learn that he has beheaded? Matthew and Mark give a more detailed account of what Herod did there, which basically Herod had his brother's wife and John the Baptist called him out for it. And Herod's wife now did not like that and so told Herod to kill him. And Herod did. And now I think what's going on here is Herod's not just perplexed, but I think his conscience is pricked for the evil that he has done. And he's wondering, has he risen from the dead to come and get me? This question of who is this man is a massive theme in the book of Luke. And I think Luke is setting the scene for us as readers, as he did in chapter 8, when Jesus calms the storm and the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And now Herod's asking this question, the most powerful man in the region. And next week, I invite you to come back because we're going to pick up on this theme of who is Jesus and how should we respond to Him? Especially if we want to be followers of Him. I hope you can join us as we unpack that all the more next week. 
So Jesus gives His twelve, the twelve, power and authority. He sends them out. The kingdom of God is expanding as it is proclaimed. And that leads me to our second point here this morning. Jesus' provision of the 5,000. And you might be familiar with this story. It's actually one of the few that we have in all four Gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And upon reading it at face value, it's incredible what Jesus does here. It is a miracle. But I believe He's doing something way more significant than feeding a crowd. So let's unpack it. So the twelve, they come back from their journey. Maybe it's Labor Day. And Jesus says, hey, let's go for a little R&R. Let's go for a little rest and relaxation. And so, He lets them get a change of clothes, maybe some new underwear, and they decide to go to the lake town of Bethsaida. But as they're on their way, the crowd that had been following Jesus catches wind of where they're going and kind of intercepts them before they even get there. And I can only imagine how the disciples responded to this. If you think about it, these guys are tired. They've been doing ministry for X number of days or weeks. We don't really know. The text doesn't say. But they're probably pretty tired. And they want to debrief with their teacher, with Jesus. And so, they're looking forward to this. A little getaway. A little time to get filled up. But then, their plans get interrupted. They get usurped. And I can only imagine how they responded. Well, the text doesn't give us what their response is, but the text does give us how Jesus responds to the crowd. He's not perturbed. He's not exasperated. He's not even disappointed. No, the text says that He welcomes them. He receives them. He's gentle with them. Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000 says that He looks upon them with compassion as sheep without a shepherd. He receives these people. And we find out that this is 5,000 men. This is a massive crowd. No doubt, probably including women and children, maybe as many as ten to 15,000. But more than helping a crowd, He's teaching something to the twelve. He's teaching them to rely on Him. But I don't think the twelve are picking up on what Jesus has thrown down here as He speaks to the crowd, as He heals the crowd, as He helps them. At least not yet. And I just want to have you imagine, like put yourself in the scene for the moment, like you're one of the disciples. And they see like the sun is starting to set. It's like, this is a lot of people. What are we going to do with all of them? And so they come to Jesus and they say, hey Jesus, it's getting late. Um, maybe we should send these people on into the towns and villages to get some food and find a place to stay. <laughs> well, I think we can give the 12 credit here. They're thinking about the crowd. They're looking after their own interests. They want to seek their good. But look what Jesus says to them. He says, you give them something to eat. And I could see the disciples just like, looking at each other, not knowing how to respond to that, 
So maybe Jesus is like over here proclaiming and healing and they kind of come over and they like huddle up. It's like, okay, you heard the man. Like we got to feed all these people. And maybe John says, well, what are we going to do? And Peter says, that's impossible. We can't feed all these people. And James asks, well, how much food do we actually have? And then Philip says, no, Andrew says we have five loaves and two fish. And Matthew says, that's not very much. How about I just go into town? Like, I'm a rich tax collector. I'll just go buy food for everybody. And Philip is like, you can't do that. Like, 200 denarii would not even buy enough food. A denarii was a day's worth of wage back then. So 200 days worth of working just to feed this massive crowd. I kind of like Philip's logic. He's in the details. He's thinking through this stuff. But as you can imagine, the disciples, they're a little skeptical at Jesus' solution here of you feed them. So what's Jesus doing? So they come back to Jesus and say, hey, we got no more than five loaves of bread. We got two little fish. Like, we could go buy enough food for all these people. And this is where the teachable moment really begins. He gives them instruction to have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And for the 12, not knowing what Jesus is thinking, not knowing what He's about to do, they obey Him. They follow His orders here. And they trust Him. And we see that even a mustard seed of faith that manifests itself in obedience is greater than a bag full of grumbling unbelief. So Jesus, He takes these meager rations, five loaves, two fish, says a blessing over them, and distributes them to the crowd alongside the disciples. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a miracle. This is tapping into the supernatural of who Jesus is. Something beyond the laws of nature in our world. But Jesus is demonstrating to us and to the twelve that He is not of this world. That the power and authority that was given to the twelve earlier by Jesus is now in one of its most concentrated forms. He created everything. He spoke creation into existence out of nothing. Not five loaves and two fish, out of nothing. Cole read it this morning. Colossians 1 15, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created. Things on heaven and on earth. He is in all things, and in Him, all things hold together. Jesus is teaching the twelve and us that God is to be relied on all throughout life. Not just for provisions of a meal, but each and every day. Moment by moment. I wonder if the disciples thought back to Exodus 16 in the manna in the wilderness. Or maybe Numbers in 11 with the quail. Or maybe Elijah in 2 Kings 17 when he takes just a handful of flour and a little jug of oil from the widow of Zarephath and he multiplies it. And there's enough that's even left over. Or Elisha. In 2 Kings 4, where he takes 20 small loaves of bread 
and feeds an army. Jesus is demonstrating here in our passage this morning that He is greater than the prophets. And He's showing the twelve that it is God who is to be relied on. Namely, that He is to be relied on. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. We must abide in that vine. We must rely on Him to bear much fruit. For apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And so our passage's resolution here shows that as the twelve distributed the food, everyone ate and they were satisfied. And I could just imagine like the feeling after that meal. There was so much food. They all ate and they were all satisfied and maybe lingered around in their groups of 50 late into the evening, enjoying themselves, thankful for the meal that they weren't anticipating, but they got to partake in. And then the 12 come into focus as our scene comes to a close. Jesus has them grab a basket each, and they go around, and they fill it up. You can imagine as these disciples are walking around, bending over, and people are just piling in the bread, piling in the fish. Just imagine what was going through their mind as they look at this. And they're like, we fed these people. We did it. No, Jesus did it. And I think Jesus is teaching them to rely on Him way more than He's feeding a crowd. So, Jesus, He is this Master Teacher. The Master Teacher who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And for us, as sent ones by Him, we are to rely on Him. Just as the disciples are learning to rely on Him, we learn this as well. But I'll tell you, as we proclaim the Kingdom of God, as we are on the other side of the cross, and the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is given to His followers, we can look back with much hope. We can look back with much confidence. Because Jesus has met our greatest need. Jesus didn't just take our five loaves and two fish and then save us. No, we came to Him with nothing. And it begs the question, is Jesus enough for you? Are you satisfied in Him to the point where you are relying on Him day in and day out? Do you realize that He hasn't just fed you, but that He is the ultimate satisfaction in your life? And if that's the case, let me just tell you, He has called you into this world to represent Him. He has called all of us as a community to meet needs, to help people. And proclaim the gospel to them. And if you want to be in awe of God, much like I was this summer as we hit these national parks, if you want to be in awe of God, you get to see someone cross over from death to life. You get to be a part of a community of people who see a transformation in individuals' lives, in a school's life, in a fraternity or sorority's life. 
then we will be in awe of God. And isn't it just amazing that He uses us amidst all our deficiencies, amidst the meager rations that we bring to Him of five loaves and two fish. This is all I got, Jesus. Puts Him on display when He saves people. When He works through us. And so let us rely on the power within us, namely Christ, for His provision for those who come to Him. And let us be faithful to proclaim the Gospel to those in our circles of influence where we live, work, and play. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, I thank You for this text here this morning. I thank You for the hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, I do pray for those who wonder who they are sent to. Lord, I pray just that You would reveal to them very clearly who You are calling them to influence with the Gospel. And Lord, I pray for us that You would give us wisdom, that You would give us creativity, and that as a community that we would bear witness to the Gospel that has such a life-transforming power and authority. And Lord, I pray just that You would help us to rely on You, not just on Sundays, not just on times that we are in a need, but each and every day. And would we see that You are enough, that You are our satisfaction. And Lord, I pray just that You would help those here who are wondering who You are. What should we do with You? Lord Jesus, I pray that You would use our community, that You would use Your Word proclaimed to bear witness to Your love and Your care for them. Would You draw them to Yourself? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.